Welcome to the podcast M&A War Stories. You're joined by your hosts, Robert Heaton and Toby Tester. Each week, we walk through our experiences of M&A projects where we've been involved and we unpack the good, the bad, and the ugly. Our purpose is simply to leave you with valuable lessons that you can use in your M&A projects. And so let's not waste any more time and get this podcast underway. Hey, Toby, how's uh, life in Sydney today? Well, let's see. Uh, bright, sunny day um, up here in Sydney, Rob. Look, we're not in lockdown, I should say. <laughs> um, uh, thank you. I, I was in the, <laughs> I was, interesting enough, I was in the city today visiting the dentist, did my checkup and all very good. And, but the remarkable thing is, is that everybody's freely moving around, no restrictions, no masks. It's basically Absolute. an ordinary day in the city, uh, as far as I'm Absolute concerned. opposite here. It, first of okay. all, it's dark and freezing cold. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, oh, that's Melbourne. So you. most people are pleased to be indoors to some degree. <laughs> and secondly, of course, we're in lockdown. The issue is this is the fourth one. Fourth lockdown, and I think somebody just calculated that Victorians have spent 156 days or something like that in lockdown over the course of this thing, which is ridiculous. And, of course, people's tempers are starting to get frayed, and there's got to be another solution to it. But that's (laughs) the way it is. Um, Now, talking about disasters. (laughs) Yes. We're, we're in a bit of a role here, aren't we, Rob? Oh, when you're it not comes kidding. to uh, disastrous <laughs> stories regarding M&A, because uh, we've done a few so far, oh. haven't we? Well, I was just looking at it earlier on, and I was sort of going, what? Each time we've done one of these, I've been thinking, God, that was a bad one. And then we seem to get worse each week. So, <laughs> and, and you've got one that we've sort of touched on before in previous podcasts, yeah. and you, you call this guy Fred the Shred. Yes. And it's... Not all the hallmarks of disastrous M&A, yes. but it also has some hallmarks of disastrous leadership as well in this. Yes. I must admit, this is a big one. This seriously is a major, major failure. And interesting enough, it was so big that not only did it bring down an organization, it almost brought down an entire country. Yeah. Yep. And here we're talking about Royal Bank of Scotland. MA debt and dysfunction. How Royal Bank of Scotland through its MA failures blew up the British economy. Big right. title. So, <laughs> now the, so take, us through, take us through the background to it. Let me let me just first of all start. First of all, we know that MA, many of the world's success, most successful businesses out there, have actually been built through mergers and acquisitions. You can name them all. There's so many of them that are out yep. there, whether it's in pharmaceuticals, whether it's Glaxo, Smith, Klein, and Beecham, and they go on and on. And major successes. So MA is an incredible tool for creating disproportionate growth. But at the flip side, it can be the source of the world's biggest and most disastrous corporate failures. And that's done through ill-conceived, ill-timed, and poorly executed transactions. And here we come into Fred Goodwin, as we mentioned before, Fred the Shred, and Royal Bank of Scotland. Now, let me just go through a bit of a history here. I'm going to go back, let's say, about 20 years. And Fred Goodwin actually became the uh, chief executive officer of uh, Royal Bank of Scotland. And the Royal Bank of Scotland, quite frankly, was actually a product of many, many acquisitions itself. And it has grown successfully through acquisition. And so 
in the period of 2001 and 2003, it made about 20-odd acquisitions. I'll name a few. There was the Mellon Financial Group. There was the acquisition of an insurance company called Churchill for Credit Suisse. There was the credit card business of Santander. There was Ireland's first active. There are several, and I could keep on naming, and they were doing acquisition after acquisition after acquisition. It was literally so, continuous, wasn't it? It was a continuous role of, of, of growth and always yep. seeking growth through, through M&A. Now we start moving on to 2007, and this is where the real big acquisition occurs. And this is where RBS, Royal Bank of Scotland, with a consortium, are looking to buy the Dutch bank ABN AMRO for $70 billion. I seem to recall that even if you weren't in financial markets or M&A at that time, this was front page news everywhere. This was big, big news. And the reason why, because it was the biggest bank takeover in history. Yeah. At the time, there was nothing bigger than this. Now, something else about 2007 that actually occurred, and it was the subprime credit crisis, and it was getting worse. And, of course, we had a financial collapse. So at the time that this acquisition was being made, we then had the subprime credit crisis. And so the acquisition occurred. And so immediately after, with the financial markets in a slump, RBS was forced to make a nearly a £6 billion write-down. Now, the write-down was so big and the collapse was so big with RBS that the UK government had to step in to save the bank. And it pumped £35 billion of taxpayers' money here to shore up the RBS's capital position. This is taxpayers' money we're talking here to keep the bank because basically they had a situation where they had to do this. Otherwise, the whole economy, the UK economy, was going to go into meltdown. And and if I remember rightly, Goodwin was shot out of a cannon and sacked from the sixth floor. Pretty much so. Pretty much so. And I think the resulting year, RBS had a massive loss, didn't they? Yes, and this is another. Uh, now here we go. It's one for the record books. RBS reported a loss of twenty-four billion pounds in two thousand eight, and that was the biggest loss in corporate history in the UK. Yeah, enormous. Now there were repercussions, as you said, that Fred Goodwin was jettisoned out of cannon. As let's see, the if you remember the press at the time it was enormous anger, enormous anger. The thing is, of course, that Goodwin was sacked, but he still had a pension of £700,000 a year, annual pension. Yeah. And the government asked him to give it up. said, give it up. I think he had to, didn't he? He did. So much much political pressure. I think he had to. Absolutely. He he actually, in fact, took a 40% cut. Um, yep. in his pension, simply as a result of the widespread anger. I mean, the news article articles at the time were extraordinary, and it makes your blood pressure go up when you're even just reading about it. The, the poor corporate behaviour, not only in RBS, but in organisations generally in the finance industry. The other thing, big thing, of course, with Goodwin is he also lost his knighthood. Oh, dear. Yeah, what a shame. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but, you know, I'm just listening to this, and I'm thinking back to, I mean, as you say, it was back in the um, 
you know, two thousands, early two thousands. This is one egotistical maniac hmm. riding roughshod over all of the supposedly control mechanisms that you would have hoped to have in place for any good MA strategy. Mm-hmm. I mean, you would expect your board to have some form of governance mm-hmm. and approval process mm-hmm. on these sort of acquisitions, but that's not the case, is it? I mean, in this case, no. you, you know, that what's what is it you use? Deal fever. That's it. Yeah, it is. It is. You're right. You're right there, Rob. Let me, let me get on to that deal fever because I just want to yeah. sort of bring it up to today, right up to today. I would just say sure. that. This was a massive, and it all happened around the GFC, one of the biggest corporate collapses, and nobody went to jail over this. Um, Sure, people lost their jobs, but no one went to jail. And to this day, the government, the UK government, still holds about 55%. And in a sense, you know, I mean, nobody went to jail. There's part of me putting a lawyer's hat on. Hmm. Essentially, there was nothing illegal that's that's right. And this this is the whole problem. There was a lot of things that were improper. But yeah. not illegal. But, and I think from a regulatory point of view, obviously the regulators at the time have to do a bit of navel gazing and look at their own role in this. And there was a lot of recommendations about what regulators should do in future when it comes to making acquisitions and the role they play, and also the level of um, oversight and process that needs to happen to ensure that when deals are made, that deals are made, making full understanding of the associated risk, associated debt, risks exposed to shareholders, but also risks to to competition and the economy as a whole. So I'm desperately sitting here wanting to draw comparisons with Trump, (laughs) but I I won't. won't. You could do. I'm not not going to open that kind of words. Maybe not. Maybe not for this. Look, I've read about this one a lot. I've heard about it. I was there at the time. And I think what we've got to do as part of this podcast is make some conclusions about what organizations should not do and how we can draw lessons from this extraordinary collapse in terms of deal-making and the impacts it has on, on an organization. Yep. And I would say that there are basically three deadly M&A sins that were committed in this particular case. And they are the sins that every organization should be on the watch out for. Now, the first one you mentioned was one that we've talked about a few times before, and it comes up often. How how often have we talked about deal fever, Rob? Quite frequently. How often have we talked about it? And it's amazing how, I mean, we're talking about a huge deal here, Mm. but even in the smaller ones, it's amazing how many times that bright and shiny type approach Mm. comes up and CEOs get attracted by the the deal and their egos and everything else. Yes. It's it's kind of a culture where there's a comfort for for high risk and a short-term focus. It's all about getting the deal done. Get the deal done. Get the deal done. Let's just, what have we got to do? Let's go through and just get the deal done. I'm going to draw a comparison here. It's just popped into my head. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a sort of a uh, comparison to what's happening here. Mm-hmm. I worked for a particular senior executive at one time. Yeah. And you would say that he was very good at what he did. And, and he drove quite good growth, right? But he also had a CFO 
with equivalent power to him, mm. a sort of a yin-yang effect. Mm. So whereas this individual would go off on an ego trip to take some risk or whatever, mm. the CFO had a length of rope around his neck and could sort of gently pull him backwards, and they yeah. balanced each other nicely. Yeah. I think yeah. what we see in Deal Fever a lot, and this one's an absolute classic of it, yeah. is an individual who simply rides roughshod over everything and everybody mm. for what essentially is their own personal ambition and ego. I, you're right here, and I think with Fred Goodwin, he was known to be particularly dictatorial, he was known to be particularly bullying, and the one thing that mattered was growth. Growth, 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 which is fine, yep. but he took risk. He yep. took risk because it fulfilled a personal ambition, which is what you just said. And I think the lesson we've got to learn from this is look out for the traits of deal fever and call it out. Are you or are we as an organization potentially suffering from the symptoms of deal fever? Do you observe the behaviors that are indicative of deal fever? This is where this responsibility almost falls back on the executive leadership team and the board, doesn't it? It does very much so. And it's for them to be able to call it out. You see, the problem is, is I think what happened in this particular circumstance, people probably saw it, but didn't quite articulate and didn't call it out. And it's always difficult if you've got a leader who heads off, makes an acquisition and it's successful, and then the next one follows up five minutes later and it's successful, and the one after that, you almost feel as if you're going to stand out from the crowd if you yeah. stand up and sort of go, excuse me a minute, I think we're, you know, moving yeah. too fast and too quick here. Because what we just said is those, even when you do, those sorts of individuals basically shout you down. Yeah, that's right. And that's what happened in this particular case. He was a, a kind of a CEO who would just basically shout people down or sideline them. You know, that was it. And so the behavior continued. So well, politically, you wouldn't want to step out of line or into the firing line, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, uh, so there you go. Deal fever, basically a culture with a high comfort for risk combined with a short-term focus. That's what deal fever is. Yeah. The next sin, and it's very closely aligned, and that is politics and the ego get in the way of process and objective debate. Yep. Now... We know that Goodwin had a tremendous ego. We knew that all that mattered to him was growth. We knew that he was always on the prowl for the next takeover. And we also knew that anyone who aired doubts was shouted at or sidelined. But the thing is, is that you've got to have process. You've got to have M&A gates where you do have objective debate because you've got to follow a process to ensure that all voices are being heard. If there are, th are there arguments against the deal or why it should not go ahead, then we should let that happen and have that objective debate, have that process. In this particular case, they did not have a process. They did not have objective debate. Politics and ego basically ruled. And it becomes a dictatorial environment. Yes. So the lesson here always is that if you are going through an M&A deal, have a process. Have a, have a rational, coherent process of, of steps, deliverables, gates, and 
board meetings that actually review those and you have simple gates where you say, yes, we're going to go or not going to go. But those are transparent, clear and accountable decisions. You've got to have, I think what you're saying there is you've got to have both a process and a mechanism of governance yes. that is that is a collective process yes. and governance mechanism. Mm. You, you, I mean, to your point, you could have a, a formal process and you can have an executive leadership team. Mm. But if the CEO stands up, shouts from the top of his voice and says, I don't give a flying buggery what any of you think this is what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know you've lost it. Yes, you have, uh, you have because you've you've simply got dictatorial attitude of one person's ego and attitude. Yeah, uh, it, it, it makes a mockery of any leadership team or any board. It does. It does. You know, and those people are dangerous. Indeed, it is, and that's what the, that's, that's what happened in this particular case. So that was the second deadly sin that was committed here: politics and ego got in the way of process and objective debate. Right. And now, you said there was a third. The third deadly sin that was committed here was that boards failed in their role as M&A moderators. Now, what happened with RBS was that the board basically waved through every plan, every transaction that yeah. went through. And the extraordinary thing about it is that they – had a lack of curiosity or knowledge or understanding about what the transaction was about, the the risks associated with it, any kind of moderation or understanding of what the deal contained. None of that happened. And so they singularly failed as moderators in, in this particular case. And the role of the board is critical. It's the biggest decision an organization can make in its corporate life. M&A deals. It doesn't get much yeah. bigger than that. And yeah. boards have a vital role to play here. And again, this brings you back to the construct of a board mm. in that uh, no one or two people uh, in a board should be able to wield the majority of the power. That's right. You You want the board to be an objective body. That's right that ensures that the organization, by all means, grows and yes. takes measured risk, but you need appropriate mechanisms in the board to ensure that that gets proper debate and uh, proper consideration and that the culture of the organization yeah. is not damaged by the ego of some some overinflated individual. Indeed, indeed. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think the board needs to make sure that the process is actually being followed here, that there's a clear set of meetings coming up and proper gates whereby decisions are made and approvals sought as, as a deal progresses from, from one stage to the next. So let me, let me summarize it then if, I, if okay. I can. What we're saying is that within M&A, there needs to be a measured, systematic process-driven and governance-driven approach. Mm. And the sins that you need to be tuned in for, mm. to look out for, is number one, deal fever. When when suddenly someone with a, a large ego gets overexcited and wants to run after everything that's bright and shiny, there's got to be a mechanism that sort of pulls those people back yes. and looks at things both objectively and in a measured risk point of way. Yes. 
you secondly the politics and the ego so it's again reinforcing the point you need to have a mechanism within MA whereby MA is good for growth but each deal needs to have careful consideration as to the reason for the deal the value to the business the amount of risk that's involved etc and you cannot allow any single or group of individuals to bully and railroad and sideline mm. objective conversation, objective analysis of a deal. That's right. Yes. I mean, this is it's so critical that we have that objective analysis. Yeah. And the third is that the board, you know, this is this is the real final checkpoint, if you like, is yeah. your board has to have the balance of governance powers within its membership to be able to objectively discuss and arrive at a proper decision. And you cannot have an environment where a board is ruled or bullied by one or two powerful individuals, because if any of those mechanisms are in play, Neil Fever politics and the board's lack of action, if you like, any one of those, and you've got a recipe for disaster. And that's right. And of course, that's what happened in this one. The biggest disaster, I think, in British corporate history that yeah. almost took down the whole economy as well <laughs> of the UK yeah. at the time of the GFC. So uh, it, it's an, in many ways, Rob, this is an extraordinary story. There's so much to this one, to be honest. I think in many ways, from the time we've had, we've gone over it, at least at a high level, and just kept it down to the M&A. So much can be learned from this as at a time in history in the UK economy. So absolutely extraordinary story about how M&A can really seriously blow up in your face in a very big way. I don't think we can get worse than that next week. Well, we'll see. <laughs> I, think, I think we've reached the pinnacle of one of the worst ones you could possibly imagine. Yeah, but the thing is, is that this one's probably almost too big to sort of to get to grips with because there's so much to it. But I think the important thing is, is us continue to tell these stories, though, Rob, because obviously there are some that might not be as big. But what they do is they reinforce certain principles or certain things that we've discussed about in the previous podcast. Through example, and, and I think there's nothing like history, because history can repeat itself, is looking at what, what the past has told us and just say, well, look, guys, this has happened before. The objective is to learn from this. Don't repeat them. I, I'm just reminded of, and I might even think about talking about this next week, but I had a personal experience with the chairman of a large group in the UK, mm. and we're going back to the mid to late 80s now, but similar. He was so sure of himself. The group was making acquisition after acquisition. The group had grown to about $400 million in size. Mm. And then this particular individual decided he was going to then go and take on a $500 million acquisition. Mm. Um, and and it, it, it destroyed the company. Yeah. Well, right. the thing is, is that this is not isolated. It might be in terms of scale. This is like in terms of sheer size. But what we just discussed probably happens time, time and time again. It is happening, probably happening as we speak right now. 
Yep. And, uh, and, you know, dare we say in the private sector, probably even more prevalent than yep. in the public sector. Indeed. Indeed. Um, as always, Toby, that's been a great conversation. Yeah. Fred the Shred, as you call him, which is, I think that's a good nickname. Fred, Fred, good. I think he actually quite liked the name, actually, Fred the Shred. So, <laughs> also, it's not you. It was, it was actually a nickname given by the press or something, was it? I think so. Yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, this, right. this got. If you remember reading the press at the time, this got a lot of press. This one. Oh, I bet it would do. Well, yeah. that's been a brilliant conversation. Again, deal fever, politics and ego, and boards not fulfilling their corporate responsibilities, mm. all wrapped up into one disastrous and massive M&A failure with the Royal Bank of Scotland. It's been a great story, Toby. Yep. And I think we will close off at that. We'll be <laughs> back next week, and we'll see if we can find one that gives this one a, a run for its money, but I doubt it. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Um, <laughs> all right. And uh, I shall talk to you next week. And all okay. we've got to say by now is uh, bye for now. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.